This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. All this month, we're featuring a series called 2019 A Look Ahead. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the auto industry. In 2018, car makers announced the end of many lines of sedans and coupes to focus on more popular SUVs and trucks. Companies like Ford, General Motors, and Toyota are looking to spend more resources on autonomous vehicles and electric cars. They're also dealing with rising interest rates and trade tariffs that impact steel prices as well as sales in China. The new year started with the auto shows, including the big one in Detroit, but if the disappointing reviews coming out of the Motor City are a sign, 2019 could be a rough year for auto companies. Joining us uh, to discuss this here in studio, John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School, as well as director of the Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation at Wharton's Mack Institute. And also joining us on the phone, Paul Eisenstein, publisher and editor of the DetroitBureau.com. Happy New Year, John Paul. Great to see you. Thanks, Thanks for coming in. Good to be here. Happy Paul, New Year. Paul, great to catch up with you again. Great to be with you. So I, I, before we look, I want to look back in a second, but how do you feel, John Paul, about 2019 for the auto industry? Because as we just laid out, there were so many different things that are in play here. Yeah, <clears throat> I think uh, turbulent. That's not unusual. Um, a lot of things are turbulent these days. I was thinking through the set of issues that might come up today, and I felt that for each one, there could be a positive spin and positive angle on it and a negative spin and a negative angle on it and with a decent amount of uncertainty about quite a lot of them. So I'm sure we'll get into that, but I don't have an overall optimistic pessimistic. I just think uh, we live in interesting times, but turbulent times. When you when you <laughs> think about what you've known about the auto industry over the years, how unusual is that aspect of having both a positive and negative potentially on almost everything you see? Yeah, I mean, it's not unusual, but the range of issues that the current auto industry is dealing with, I think, is a, perhaps a broader range than I've encountered most of the years I've studied the industry. So yeah. both the technological changes and the new things like electric and autonomous vehicles, the current state of trade and the threats of tariffs. Um, you know, we had a long period where that wasn't really a big uh, kind of issue. We have uh, a lot of concerns about the strength of various economies, the U.S., but also China. You know, I actually think as big a concern as the tariff risk is the risk of China's economy slowing way down when yeah. that's been a main engine for a lot of the global automakers is uh, okay. is pretty huge. And uh, so on and so forth down the list. You know, there's just an incredible range. And I wonder what it's like to be a senior executive in these auto companies and have to deal with this amazing complexity and this amazing uncertainty. Paul, what are you thinking about for 2019? Well, uh, it's it's a real uh, it's it, it's a real guess right now what's going to happen, and I, I say that because you may recall when we spoke early, well, this time last year, uh, the general consensus was that 2018 would be a year of decline in the U.S. market, and China would grow s slower, much slower than it had in past years, but it would grow. Well, exactly the opposite has happened. Uh, the U.S. actually gained, albeit by just a hair's breadth in uh, 2018, and China posted its first decline yeah. that we've seen since the explosion of that market back around the turn of the new millennium. So uh, most people expect that China will rebound a little bit this time, and the U.S. market will again slow. Uh, I, I think an awful lot depends on what happens uh, with that fellow in the White House, 
Uh, he has, of course, declared war on, on much of the world and is continuing to talk about ramping up his trade wars. Uh, as you know, there, is, uh, uh, there are some key negotiations about that will affect the auto industry uh, with negotiations with, with the European Union. So uh, yeah. we, we just don't know. We just don't know what, what Trump will do. Uh, but we, we can say that, by and large, uh, the steps he's taking well for the auto industry. Well, when you think about China, John Paul, most recently we've had uh, Elon Musk and Tesla say that they're going to build yep. the factory over there. And obviously that's the next step he believes in trying to brand Tesla. Uh, he got the approval uh, for the Model 3 over in Europe as well. So when you think about that market, at least Tesla is is really trying to, even though they have various issues in terms of their structure and economically, they are trying to make a, a, a large step forward in 2019 in terms of building that brand out. Yeah, you know, Tesla is always out there at the risky edge of something. And I think building a brand new factory in China at this point, um, given the generally stretched, uh, you know, situation of their finances, et cetera. But, you know, again, it's several new features. Um, it's the first time a foreign company is being allowed to build a plant on its own without having a joint venture partner in China. That means less chance of, you know, knowledge leakage and having to share information, but it also means the risk is not shared anymore. But, you know, China is pushing with uh, the government uh, pushing on several fronts to be the biggest electric vehicle market in the world. And they have a lot of levers at their control to make that happen, including being able to require that foreign automakers make a lot of electric vehicles to sell there and the big push they're putting on their own domestics. So it's not so risky for Elon Musk to figure that building capacity there, that there'll be demand for electric vehicles. Yeah. And you know, a lot of the Chinese uh, startups that have come in to try to compete at the high end have struggled a lot. Uh, Faraday Future is mm -hmm. one that had seemed to be amply financed and have a lot of good talent, and they've had nothing but trouble. So I think that's actually, it's a risky bet to make that big an investment, but I think as a bet on a market that's going to have electric vehicle demand, not so much. But it, it seems like, Paul, yeah. that <clears throat> if you're talking about electric and, and even autonomous that, that we have the opportunity, I think, to see a, a, a fairly good leap forward here because of all the money that has been invested and seemingly the want of almost every automaker here in the U.S. and many around the world to really look at, at those two sides as the future of the auto industry globally. Yeah, I, I think the general consensus of the industry now is that electrification is the way of the future, and you're seeing you're seeing some growth that belies what the uh, critics and skeptics have been saying over the last few years. Uh, th there's no question that globally, sales of of all electrics, which include hybrids, plug-ins, and uh, pure battery electric vehicles, still runs below the five percent mark. But when you start to look at the growth just over the last, see a very definite and increasingly sharp upward curve uh, that tells you, you you avoid the electric market, electrification, if you will, uh, at your own peril. Uh, China is no question a place you have to be looking at electric, if nothing else, because they've passed very uh, new generation vehicle 
uh, rules which will require you to produce a certain level of plug-based models that can operate at least in certain conditions uh, in zero emissions mode. And, and we're going to be seeing the same thing basically here in the U.S. because of the 2025 economy standards, despite what the Trump administration has said it was going to roll them back. Uh, nobody seems to believe that will happen. And what's interesting is that none of the automakers I spoke to or have spoken to uh, believe that they're going to adjust their uh, their product plans to any great degree. Uh, telling, very, very telling has been the announcement just within the last week that Ford Motor Company will be launching an all-electric version of the big F-Series pickup. That yeah. is a huge one. Yeah. That's a best-selling vehicle in, in the United States, and, and that's going to have an electric version. And I break a story. You can find it today on the DetroitBureau.com that Chevrolet and General uh, GMC, the two, tr- you know, two heavy truck brands from General Motors, are working up electric versions of their pickups, the Silverado and Sierra. 844 Wharton is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. 844 942 7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L O N E Y 21. So, so, John Paul, when you think about the business side of this for a second, how do you think the, the U.S. auto industry is set right now? And I look at it from the perspective of of employment for a second. And I mentioned GM obviously making some cuts. They, the Hamtramck plant is going to get shut down. But then you have Volkswagen coming in and committing to add, uh, you know, $8 billion, I think it was, or $1 million it was, and 1,000 jobs at a plant in Tennessee. So it seems like that there is some struggles for some companies, but there's also the potential for some growth area as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the GM layoffs got a lot of press and, of course, a lot of uh, attacks on GM and Mary Barra from uh, from the president. It wasn't a big surprise if you simply looked at how much the demand for the products made in those plants had slowed way down over a period of a couple of years, the general shift away from sedans to SUVs. And I think the hard-won wisdom um, that it's better to make these cuts in good times than wait for bad times and when you may have actually made them worse. So this kind of adjustment of employment to the market demand is going to keep going on. And, of course, it's a global industry, so some production has moved out of the U.S. And, uh, you know, there may be employment growing there. For the foreign auto companies, the U.S. is still the biggest market in the world for them or close with China. And so to come here, to build here, to build brand here, to build a reputation here still makes sense. So there's the Volkswagen investment, but Toyota and Mazda announced that they're going to do a joint plant together in the southern U.S., which, um, you know, they may have done partly to win political favor, but uh, you don't make a big investment only for those kinds of reasons. They've got demand for those vehicles here, and it's a way to be protected against some of the risk of tariffs. So, you know, employment's going to go up and down across plants, across companies. Yeah. Uh, it's the overall picture of, of growth for the industry and the world economy that probably these companies are really watching. Paul? Yeah, one of the one of the big trends I, I think we have to watch in this coming year is is how automakers start to pair up. It's interesting that Tesla is going to China uh, on its own, essentially, uh, whereas almost everywhere else you see in the world, manufacturers continue to uh, spread the cost. 
by pairing up. So that's one of the things I am watching this year. We have the Honda VW, I mean, excuse me, the Ford VW deal, the Honda General Motors deal, uh, Toyota Mazda, which surprised many folks, and so on. And uh, this is just going to be the way of the world. You're not going to see many of these alliances become uh, full-time partnerships, marriages, if you prefer. Uh, the other element uh, that we're going to be seeing is that these are limited uh, anti-monogamous uh, ventures. So uh, great example is Toyota for most of its uh, existence uh, shied away from anything, uh, tying it to another manufacturer. But just in the last couple of years, we're seeing a tie-up with BMW, Mazda, Subaru, uh, and uh, and so on and and this is just going to be one of the things I'm watching. Well, supposed to continue a trend in in 2019 and beyond. And, and Toyota announcing recently tying up with with Panasonic in terms of the development of electric batteries, which is the next. By the way, yeah. which by the way is the company that's partnered with uh, with Tesla. With Tesla, so yeah. There's a great example of yeah. how these marriages are not monogamous. Yeah, John Paul. Of course, also Panasonic, the longtime supplier for the Prius. So that's a relation that goes way back. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, full uh, Sergio Marchionne, who passed away this year, was uh, famous for many things, his uh, turtlenecks um, that he always wore, <laughs> but also for predicting that the industry was inevitably going to have to consolidate to a small number of big players because he felt scale economies... It was incredibly wasteful of capital to have all these firms developing all those vehicles. Well, there's a long history of failed mergers in the auto industry. Uh, the Nissan, Renault, and then eventually Mitsubishi Alliance was what we all pointed to as the most successful long-term relationship that wasn't an outright merger. That's obviously troubled right now, although I think still has some inherent strengths if they can figure out we, I'm sure we may talk about that, the Carlos Ghosn scandal and yeah. the, the new governance and balance of power between those two countries. But I think the auto industry, I mean, I've always thought that consolidation to a small num number of companies was unlikely, that what was more likely would be a whole lot of projects in which costs are shared where it's advantageous for the partners. Sure. And yeah. so exactly as Paul described, you know, you get... Two companies worked together in an engine project. Toyota and Peugeot had a big diesel engine project in Europe, which they did for a number of years. Worked for both partners. Then on to the next generation technology, they disbanded it. Um, you know, Toyota had hmm. a deal with Volkswagen to make pickups a long time ago. They moved in and out of that. You could see these as failed projects, or you could see them as very pragmatic, often short-term calculations to deal with cost pressures, needs for a technology, needs for a product, in the short term. And I think it's actually a healthy adaptation to all the volatility and uncertainty as opposed to the big bet of like a daimler Chrysler merger, which, as yeah. we know, eventually failed. Well, wouldn't it also, you can take it from the perspective of some of these partnerships that may work in the short term, but they don't go very long, is that you're testing a, a next set of processes Absolutely. that may lead to something five to ten years down the, load, down the road, either by yourself or with another company. Yep. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. Exactly. And what, one of the things that you'll see is that many of these joint ventures are uh, what, what they will refer to as pre-production. Uh, you've seen that with General Motors and Ford when they paired up to develop a new range of these super-efficient transmissions. Yep. They developed some of the basic technology uh, that allowed them to build new 
and, and presented at an effective cost. But as they got closer to the stage when they could migrate from the uh, from the uh, CAD CAM designs to uh, actual manufacturing, they split off. And there are significant differences between the versions that each of the automakers produces. And that's something that you see in the and, it, and for good reason, especially when it comes to products. Toyota and Subaru, you may recall, developed a, a pair of low-end sports cars, the uh, Toyota 86, as it's now called, and the Subaru BRZ. But they're all about identical. It's what, what in the industry we uh, derisively call badge engineering. That teamed up with BMW to develop a high-end vehicle, the return of the Supra. Uh, it made sure that that vehicle looks extremely different from the BMW version of the Z4. The Toyota Super, which returns to the U.S. for the first time in 21 years, is a coupe. And the BMW uh, Z4 is a roadster. Right. I, I want to switch this for a second, Paul, and, and talk about the, uh, the the growing market, it seems like, in the used car market for a second. Because we see now, it feels like because of the prices and the way that they have risen on new cars over the last few years, that there is more and more of a market for the consumer out there for the used vehicle, whether it be a two-year vehicle com- coming off of a lease, a four- or five-year vehicle. We're obviously seeing more companies that are dipping into this market. They're trying to innovate in terms of uh, being able to sell these vehicles and deliver them right to your doorstep, some companies. How is the growth of, of the used car market, especially in the last couple of years, either going to continue or maybe level off in, in 2019 and maybe the next few years in your mind? Well, the best thing that can happen for the used car market is to continue to see average transaction prices. The pricing vehicle, when it rolls off the lot, including discounts and accessories, uh, those prices have gone up to near or actual record levels. So what are we paying uh, between thirty-five dollars and $40,000 today for a typical vehicle? And that is pushing a tr- tremendous uh, potential uh, new car buyer market out of, uh, out of range. They simply can't afford it. What's interesting is I'm talking to more and more people who can afford new cars, yeah. but they say, why should I? Why don't I just get these so-called uh, certified pre-owned vehicle. Typically, we're, uh, we're off lease, which means that buyers kept real good care of them because they, they would otherwise be penalized on the return. Uh, they are, like I say, a year or two old. They're very often identical to the model that's in the showrooms as a new vehicle right now. And they get like new warranties, thousands of dollars less. So yeah. that, that has become uh, something the industry has created that's become a threat to its own new car marketing. John Paul? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from a dealer point of view, uh, one of the, I guess, relatively well-known secrets of dealer economics is that new cars have lower margins than used cars, which have lower margins than repair, which have lower margins than aftermarket parts. Yeah. And so um, to the extent that the dealers are the ones in the certified, you know, pre-owned vehicle market, they probably do okay um, out of this. You know, it's uh, we we've observed this prolonged period of pretty darn good auto sales in the U.S. You know, even as Paul said, a little bit higher this year than last year, and of course, for a long time we said, well, it was the depressed demand uh, during the recession, and then it's yeah. all come back. But to yeah. me, it's had more legs than that, and I've wondered how many people have 
decided that, you know, there's so much new technology, new safety technology, other kinds of things that I want access to. So even if my older car is okay, I'm going to invest in doing that. Maybe that's propelled the last couple of years of somewhat higher than expected demand. But at some point, you can go into the used car market, a couple years old, and you can still get all that new technology. So I think that could be a piece of what's happening. Why not get the 2017, which had the full set of safety features? So unless there's a bunch of new safety stuff or yeah. autonomous features that happens, new, new technologies do always drive a piece of demand. But if they're rapidly in the used car base, then that helps the used car market too. Paul? Yep, exactly. There, there, there's all sorts of factors. I mean, uh, John Paul just nailed it. There are all sorts of factors that are that are causing a lot of shift in the market, who is buying and what they're buying. Uh, one of the things we'll be watching very closely this year is the uh, the uh, ride sharing and car sharing business. Uh, one of the most significant yeah. developments of 2018 occurred very late in the year, you may recall, when Waymo, the Google spinoff, announced that they were going to go to an autonomous ride-sharing service called Waymo One. Out in, uh, It's not quite the breakthrough that some people would have you believe. The fact is, for safety reasons and because it's turning out to be much more difficult to develop truly autonomous vehicles, uh, each of those each of those cars fueled by way backup quote unquote operator behind the wheel ready to take over in an, emer- in an emergency. Right. Uh, John Krafczyk, the former Hyundai chief who now runs Waymo, has backed off a bit from his glowing forecast that they would be having fully self-driving vehicles with no all in them. Uh, so we don't know exactly when that will happen. And, in fact, if anything, it's actually adding cost. You have a more expensive vehicle and a driver uh, yeah. behind it. Uh, so that that's, uh, you know, that's the caveat here. But if they find out that they're able to really make this work, if the drivers don't have to constantly intervene, they may get approval within the next year or two to start fielding driverless vehicles, completely driverless. And that changes the equation because you take the driver out, the biggest cost of a ride-sharing vehicle and a ride-sharing service goes away. Suddenly, you potentially make it possible for companies like Waymo One, Uber, Lyft, and some of the others that are coming to actually undercut the idea of owning a vehicle. And in particular, particularly in urban markets, uh, that may get thousands even millions of drivers, to abandon the idea of personal vehicle ownership. It, it feels like, John Paul, that, and we've talked about autonomous now for the four and a half years we've been on the air here yep, with you. Absolutely. But it feels like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like we've made pretty significant steps in the last couple of years on the technology side, but also the the understanding, I think, by the public and maybe the government as well, that this is a technology that is coming, uh, that at some point it's going to be there, and maybe it is even a little bit sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, it's always been a topic filled with a lot of hype, and so at the hyped end of expectations, I think this year was a year of a little bit of you know, realism and retrenchment. There was the Uber death in Phoenix and all that. But mm-hmm. we're going to see more and more experimentation, more and more pilots. If you take the percentage of total vehicle miles traveled, is it going to be a huge percentage? No. 
but the pilots help the companies learn and get better and improve their algorithms. And it lets the public see these new things, kind of be more realistic about what works and what doesn't. You know, you're going to find them slow and that they do weird, quirky things of stopping at times you you never would as a driver because that's part of working out how it how it goes. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. all of it's a kind of slow movement, I think, towards both improvement and public acceptance that maybe in a couple of years we'll say, wow, b- below the surface, things really were accelerating on right. this. On the phones in Panama City, Florida, Jason is on the line. Jason, go ahead with your question. Yes, uh, can you guys hear me? Yes, yes. Go ahead. Yep. Okay, yeah, fantastic. Hey, so I was curious, do you guys see a recession in the uh, car market with uh, used car sales eating up all these new car um, new car sales? Because, you know, we just had this hurricane recently through Panama City, and if you go to dealers, they're selling uh, some new cars, but everybody's trying to eat up the used cars because they just can't afford the new car prices. Right. And yeah. that's yep. just the... Uh, yep. That was simple that observation. Was a that I tried you to were talking about the leases and all. Okay, Jason. Uh, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, that Jason. That was exactly the point I try to make. Uh, these CPOs, uh, certified pre-owns, are such an attractive alternative. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm looking at one myself. Uh, my wife wants to get into a, a pickup because we kayak a lot, and we want something that we can haul it. We can't with uh, the current vehicle we have, yeah. so uh, we're going to add that. And uh, we there's a very PO as opposed to a new vehicle, uh, and I think that you're seeing that more and more. Um, it's probably one of the reasons that that huge growth that we saw during the uh, middle of this decade in the U.S. new car market has has not screeched to a halt, but pretty pretty darn close. But, now, that, by the way, I should say that at 17 million units, even if we do drop again another uh, fraction of a point or even a percentage point, these are still numbers that are, are up where, you know, what would have been records not that many years ago. But I, I guess, and Jason, thanks for the call. I guess the question is, John Paul, is that if even if, as what Paul says, let's say we go from 17.2 million to 16.8 million in terms of new auto sales this year, does that start a trend because of the fact that we are seeing more companies want to jump into the used car market and the consumer may be conditioned more to think about that because because of the cost that they're having to look at when they're when they're potentially trying to fish for a new car these days. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. I think the prices of new versus used makes a big difference. The cost of financing makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, one factor oh, yeah. that we haven't talked about for a while is uh, for a while everybody said millennials um, don't care about cars anymore. They only care about their gadgets, and that's a generational shift that will shake up the auto industry. I don't know. It now looks like as the millennials get older, they get married, they move out of the cities to the suburbs, they have kids, they're buying cars. And maybe their finances now allow them to do that, too. So that's a kind of unexpected source of demand. Now, maybe they'll go for the recent used or the new, but um, it's there's so many things. And I you know, it's a very cyclical industry. Like you say, if we go from. 17.2 17.2 to 16.8, it's actually not a tragedy for the industry. It's almost expected because we've had these surprises that it hasn't made that dip yet. Yeah. Paul? Well, I, I should point out that uh, John Paul is absolutely right. Uh, what we saw last year was millennials basically saved the industry from a second consecutive year of decline. Uh, every analyst I've talked to has said that it was largely an increase in millennial sales that surprised them. 
And we are likely to continue to see that as they get older, they get wealthier, and they can start buying new vehicles. Yeah. But at that said, uh, there will be several things that everybody is watching when it comes to millennials and the about to enter the market, uh, Gen Z. And that, well, let's see, number one, will they go for used vehicles are just being smarter about their money, tighter with their budget, in many cases saddled with with uh, college debt. Uh, secondly, what sort of vehicles will they buy? And here are two trends. We talked about one earlier, which is you know, the rise of electrification. Uh, will they, in fact, follow through on, on what high school and college years and actually switch to electrified vehicles, green right. vehicles? Uh, and also, that said, will they also go more and more, continue the push into crossovers and conventional sport utility vehicles? Most people believe that trend will continue going forward. But few manufacturers that some of their data suggests that you're seeing younger buyers, really, you know, just getting into the market buyers, uh, saying, I don't want what dad had. And some of them are saying, give me something that's more like a conventional sedan. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty about where generation and the next generation will go. You know, it's funny, Paul, you say that, and I have to end this here. My daughter said the exact same thing about my oldest daughter said the exact same thing <laughs> about my car two days ago. So I, I, I'm living this exactly right where you're talking about it. Paul, great to catch up with you. Uh, thanks again, and we'll talk to you again down the road. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. John Paul, great seeing you. Thanks yeah, for coming in. see you too. John Paul McDuffie from here at the Wharton School. Paul Eisenstein, publisher and editor of a great website that follows everything uh, around the auto industry, thedetroitbureau.com. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.